Welcome to Health Equity Now. I'm your host, John Gorman. Back when I was uh, contemplating the founding of Nightingale Partners as the first fund dedicated to social determinant of health investments, I took inspiration from market leaders in Medicare Advantage and Medicaid. And among them were Scan Health Plan, Commonwealth Care Alliance, and UPMC in Pittsburgh, which has a long and distinguished history in the space. As one of the first plans to set up a dedicated entity for social determinant of health investments, I knew UPMC's Center for Social Impact was something we needed to get close to and learn from. Um, back in December 19, uh, 2019, which was read about when I was uh, finalizing the plans for Nightingale, uh, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center uh, made the decisive move to better understand and address social determinants of health. And the UPMC Center for Social Impact was launched in Pittsburgh and has since made sizable investments in affordable housing, homelessness initiatives, and support services for Medicaid uh, dual eligibles and for members in their special needs plans. And here to talk us through these programs and strategy is the executive director of the UPMC Center for Social Impact, my friend, Ray Pushnak. Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, John, for having me. I really look forward to the discussion and you know, thank you for the very kind introduction. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Um, Ray, as the Grateful Dead has always loved to sing about, it's been a long, strange trip uh, in your career to the position you're in now. Uh, Ray is the executive director of the UPMC Center for Social Impact, the social determinant of health investment arm of UPMC Health Plan in Pittsburgh. He's a 10-year veteran of UPMC, and Ray has run their special needs plans and their Medicaid plans, which enroll over half a million people uh, before assuming the role as their lead investor in social determinants of health. Ray, it's uh, one of the more enviable jobs in the industry, and uh, I'd be lying if I wasn't saying I was a little jealous about having this role. So take us through this long, strange trip of your career and how you ended up in this uh, this amazing job now at UPMC. Oh, sure. Well, well thanks, John. You know, I, I, um, you know, really am privileged and lucky to be able to, to work with such a great group here at, at UPMC Health Plan. I, um, I started my career as a community organizer and an activist in Albuquerque, New Mexico, working for New Mexico Public Interest Research Group. And my, my role then was, you know, working to uh, rein in predatory lending. We were working on predatory lending mortgage bills, working on, you know, things like, you know, uh, payday lending. And my career, um, you know, in public policy led me back home to my home state in, in you know, Harrisburg, where I found my way into aging policy. And, you know, throughout my early career, I never dreamed that I would be a healthcare executive, you know, sort of seeing, you know, sort of insurance maybe oppositional to some of my values at the time. But I was able to uh, meet some great folks like John Lovelace in my time in Harrisburg, who brought me on board to work on our special needs plan. Then I went on to lead our managed long-term care business. And the common thread here is that, you know, health insurance companies increasingly, uh, as the conversation has shifted to removing barriers to care, are really, you know, in a prime spot to, to really do well by doing good. Yeah. And, you know, I think as, as organizations like ours have evolved, and, you know, I'm really lucky to work for a progressive forward-thinking organization like ours. But, you know, a common thread in my time here over the last decade has been, you know, we've 
had, you know, in addition to our responsibilities, you know, sort of working in the business, had projects that support members and their nutritional needs or their trans transportation needs or right. over-the-counter needs and sort of common Medicare Advantage, you know, tactics. But then more specialized programs, like programs that support people who are, you know, unhoused and experiencing homelessness and sort of, you know, being able to, uh, you know, also see that there are threads in my time in, in state government, um, you know, th there are gaps like, my first question when coming into the special needs plan business was how many of our members participate on waiver programs? And it was a very difficult question to answer. And it takes, you know, a significant degree of time, energy, resources to begin to build those data linkages. And then you can cater programming that, you know, better aligns things. So I, I think in a word, you know, our work is really centered around alignment. You know, we do a lot of work around, you know, braiding public resources with what we can do as a, uh, you know, uh, a government focused, you know, health insurance plan. And, you know, we uh, have seen some really, you know, great early success from taking just that practical view. How do we work together better with community organizations, work better with government, work better with other parts of Medicaid? Ray, you spent over a decade working in these roles and that long strange trip of going from the college student door knockers at the public interest research group to state government in Pennsylvania, you know, uh, accelerating to being the acting secretary of the Department of Aging for the state must have really shaped your views of the world uh, now as a healthcare investor on behalf of uh, one of the nation's leading plans and government programs. So tell us a little bit about that transition from public to private and from advocacy to what is in effect now an operating role, really. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I think as you sort of go through your, your career, you, uh, you learn things about yourself. And, you know, I think at, at one point it was, you know, uh, more about the issues. Another place it was understanding that it was about the people and being able to make a difference in individual lives. And then being able to come into a platform, you know, where in a state government role, you are, you know, sort of at 30,000 feet, you are not really directly engaging in the health insurance plan. You're, you're a little bit closer to the ground and able to, to interact a little differently than you can in that policy arena. And, you know, uh, uh, you know working on the product side has a, you know, a really a lot, of, a lot of great facets to it. But, you know, in, in my current role, being able to work across our organization. So we, you know, have uh, alignment and linkages with staff that are in, for example, our charitable giving department, right. you know, making sure that we're, we're sort of changing how we think about, you know, giving to an organization, because what is more sustainable is how do we turn that into a program? You know, organizations where we've been giving for a long time, we know they're making a difference in our members' lives. Right. How do we begin to demonstrate that and show that? And so, you know, across these different, you know, uh, areas, I mean, I think, again, the the common string is sort of finding this place where you can you know, really make a difference and, and make a, a positive difference in your community. It's just from a different platform. Right. Absolutely. And armed with a whole lot more data uh, and other uh, learnings that help make those programs more effective on the ground. Yeah, ab absolutely. Right. And, and data is, is critical to all of this work. And, you know, I think one of the, uh, you know, as I mentioned with, you know, sort of just understanding somebody participating on a waiver, we have a, a project that our team you know, oversees that 
you know, just working with intellectual disability providers. You know, we have, you know, uh, thousands of members who are unable to be reached. They're, you know, unable, you know, to connect with our care management team. What we don't see on the claims record are things like a person participating in a waiver program that they live in a residential environment where they have supports around them 24 hours a day. By being able to build those connections and then building, you know, programming where you're connecting with a community-based organization, giving them information they need to succeed, yeah. giving them sort of that red phone where they can get in touch with someone on our team to cut through the DME fiasco that they're on, that, that they're going through or, right. or sort of get that vaccine that they need. So being able to make those basic connections through data are essential. And, and those are, you know, I think, just sort of the some of the, the, you know, the early opportunities that we've seen through creating strong relationships, for example, with our Allegheny County Department of Human Services. So having some line of sight for care coordination where members participating in the aging system or the children, youth and family system and being able to build those, those relationships. Right, right. So Ray, you arrived at UPMC in 2011, but it'd be another eight years before the launch of the Center for Social Impact. So talk us through some of the internal shifts and the machinations and the evolution at UPMC that would eventually result in the center. By the way, your partner in crime, John Lovelace, who runs government programs there at UPMC, is an old and dear friend. And John and I always used to see each other on the rubber chicken circuit in the before times. And I'd always recognized John as a visionary in this space. I have to imagine he and some of the other leaders at UPMC were formative in the development of the center. Yeah, and you know, I, John has been a, a friend, a boss, a mentor. You know, someone I've I've had the privilege of working with over this last decade. And you know, he this really was in in large part his vision as he sort of looked to see how you know as the conversations changed, we began. You know, it's not that um, you know social determinants of health weren't something that existed before 2018 or 2017. Right. It just entered in as a part of the dialogue. And you know, as you know, John, we've we've you know had a lot of these programs in place for many years. But, you know, oftentimes when you're sort of working, you know, on the business, you are focused in on, you know, growing your membership, your new product design, expense, you know, revenue. How are you, you know, sort of meeting those, those key quality metrics and that, you know, project to support, you know, a pilot around, you know, uh, unhoused members falls off the sort of edge of the plate. And so I think by having a, a unit in our government programs connected to our Center for High Value Healthcare, we aim to align those resources and bring you know, focus. So our team can spend all of its time thinking about ways that we can improve you know, housing and, and be a, you know, so not only sort of investing in our members' individual you know, housing needs, for example, but then also how do we you know, sort of make um, anchor investments as an institution. And you know, I think one of our, our um, early investments was in an organization called Omicello, so a minority-owned mm -hmm. A real estate investment, you know, firm. We we invested twenty million dollars to, you know, help improve affordable housing stock in our region and, and around the country. But that was more of a a market rate investment. It was a way to do good, but also you know was meant to see returns. And so that that gave us our first you know opportunity. We're thinking, okay, well, as a large you know uh, insurance organization, we have reserves. Those reserves are invested. Are there ways where we can you know, invest differently to make more of an impact. And that led to 
last year making a commitment similarly from our, our you know Medicaid company to invest $15 million at you know zero to two percent interest and in various deals into affordable housing stock that we know can benefit our members, our our communities where we all live and work, and you know, and our, our workforce and how do we you know, improve the vibrancy of Pittsburgh and make sure it's inclusive and a livable city for all. And so yeah. it is a, um, you know, so as an organization, you know, we've, um, you know, it, it's a process. I mean, I think it's sort of, we um, had the benefit of going through a program called Accelerating Investment in Healthy Communities sponsored by Robert Wood Johnson and the, mm-hmm. community, the Center for Community Investment that really taught us the ropes and helped us build some of these business cases. And as you know, in this world, it's, you know, it's about the business case. So how do we, we show that these iterations make sense for us because every choice like this that we make is a choice not to do something else. So it, you know, and and when you're in, in this world, there are a lot of tough choices to make. So it's an investment in, you know, a program around housing, not an investment around a pharmacy program or other very important area where you can spend your time and money. And how do you guys make those choices about the investments that you make? I mean, is there an investment committee that, you know, the center has that evaluates all the, the various things that can come up? Because it is, it's very difficult having to choose between, you know, having a finite pot of money to put into certain impactful initiatives and deciding which one's going to get that money and which ones don't. Um, how do you guys go about doing that? Yeah. So specifically from from the housing standpoint, we um, we work with a um, a CDFI, um, you know, Community Development Financial yep. Institution, Bridgeway Capital, here in Pittsburgh. And you know, once we sort of built the 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 you know um, the case internally and built support, we um, you know have uh, you have you know, relied on them to help you know draw from their pipeline on projects that meet you know our goals and our priorities. And mm-hmm. so. In that specific case, you know, we've, um, you know, invested through Bridgeway. We don't necessarily want to be the sort of first money in or be the one picking winners or losers in the community. I think what we see ourselves as is a catalytic investor. How do we take something that otherwise might not move if we can offer, you know, lower cost credit to make a, a deal pencil out that otherwise, you know, might not happen. It's a, just a great place for us to, uh, to engage our community and, and, you know, be a, um, you know, an anchor for, for affordable housing. Right. Right. And that's been a huge effort that has spawned uh, a a much bigger initiative across the city. We'll talk about in a second. So UPMC famously invests millions into community programs and charity and research and education each year. How is that different than the work being done by the center for social impact? And if you would, Ray, UPMC was a founding member of One Pittsburgh, the, the, the former mayor's initiative to basically get UPMC, Highmark, and others to contribute huge contributions to uh, an independent fund that would make similar investments uh, within the city and county uh, of Pittsburgh and Allegheny. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit, if you can, about what separates the work of the Center for Social Impact from One PGH and from your charitable and um, and community program work. Yeah, certainly. So we um, you know, we're proud to uh, you know have you know contributed and participated in, in you know Mayor Peduto's One Pittsburgh Initiative, uh, but I do think it's it's an area where it's you know certainly is an aligned interest. We were you know thinking about these questions and going this direction. As I mentioned, the accelerating investment healthy communities 
you know, the mayor's staff and, you know, uh, folks from our Urban Reinvestment Authority and other community stakeholders were a part of our travel team and we all got to know each other very well and, you know, really helping to understand, you know, how we can work together on some of these goals. You know, our leadership, you know, um, certainly made that commitment, but, you know, in large part, there are things that, you know, we, uh, you know, ha have been doing, but now we're going to do more of. And, I, and so, as I mentioned, that $15 million in, you know, from uh, our Medicaid side of the house, that that's invest going to be invested here in, in the city of Pittsburgh. We also have a variety of places where, you know, we have a long history of, um, you know, charitable giving and tax credit giving to community right. development corporations and sort of helping to, to make those investments move. And it's sort of a broad view of how we sort of give, partner, and invest. And so we, we will maintain charitable things that make sense. We have programs where we have community partners, again, so in our commu with community human services here locally, they help us, you know, navigate housing for unhoused members. And then how we invest, how do we, you know, sort of look at our balance sheet and find unique ways to uh, help, help projects move. So is, is the stuff that the center's investing in sort of motivated by what will be profitable or impactful or what separates the work of the center from one PGH or from the charitable work that you guys yeah. have? So, yeah, we're, we're, we're not the, uh, we're not the charitable arm. We're not the sort of clinical or, or product arm, but we, we sort of, you know, uh, align between, and, you know, I think part of this here is looking at, and if I could say sort of our North star as a department, is to really be able to show where meeting a you know social need or removing a social barrier can you know um, impact health outcomes, health quality, and yep. lower cost. Yep. And so we, we're looking to you know make smart investments that you know have an ROI. Sometimes that ROI isn't pure dollars and cents. It's a social ROI. It's a mission ROI. Right. It's an ROI in terms of you know, our, our image and sort of what, what we're about. But the, um, the idea here is that, you know, we, you know, within this sort of broad landscape of social determinants of health, there are so many issues that are, are, are big and they're, it's daunting and it's difficult to sort of see where, where can I fit in? And I think where we've, um, you know, succeeded is being able to, to identify places where we know we can make an impact. And so a few things that sort of we've come to know that, you know, we can, um, you know, you can't pay for, you know, rent and food for every member, but there are places where um, very specific investments make a lot of sense. So we have members who are chronically homeless. Yeah. They, you know, typically have spend, you know, 30,000, 40,000, $50,000 a year. Yeah. If we can help make a connection, get them housed, build a support system around them. It takes a long time, but it takes about 10 months, but then we begin to see an ROI. We know that works. Yeah. We know that braiding with human services works. We know that there are, you know, sort of human services agencies that know our members better than we do. They have our members trust. How do we, we sort of braid, braid those services together? We know that people that are participating in public benefits, you know, do better than members that aren't. So getting people into SNAP. So identifying those things, but there's still a lot we don't know. Like, when does it make sense to, you know, pay for a food box? When does it make sense to, you know, pay for uh, transportation? And as we sort of learn and sort of experiment in these areas, we hope to increase the, the overall body of knowledge on what works. Wow, that's great. Can you share the, the relative level of capital that's being deployed by the center 
on an annual basis? I mean, you guys are throwing millions around in all these various initiatives. How much of that is attributable to the center? Yeah, so it's um, you know we we are we are lucky in that we get to to tell the story of the great work of of so many other people. So it's not always necessarily you know within within one budget or another. I mean, as as I noted, you know within um, within the uh, the you know housing front, we've um, you know made a variety of uh, a variety of investments. You know, for example, you know we um, about three million dollars a year in um, you know charitable and tax credit dollars go into um, our neighborhood assistant neighborhood uh, partnership programs directly going into housing. Mm -hmm. um, UPMC has made a commitment to a low barrier homeless shelter that's being constructed right now. Yeah. Where we'll be providing, you know, $6.7 million in, in supports and, you know, within, so, and our, our $15 million, you know, investment in uh, affordable housing. So in some, that's probably around $30 million in, in, in the housing arena. We have, you know, member-focused programming. Uh, and, and some of these things are, are you know, even in, in benefits. So how do we look at, you know, our post-acute meals programs and, right. and, you know, transportation programs? So while it's tough to quantify, it's, you know, we're, we're um, we're a small but mighty, you know, group within our, our organization. We're we're trying to get our trying to get our heads around that and, and more effectively tell that story. So more to come on that front. I love thinking of your center as like the the RBG of UPMC, small but mighty, right? <laughs> um, and some of those initiatives are uh, amazing. I mean, I've I've been following just the the homeless shelter that you guys are going in on, and I think that was an overall about a twenty million dollar budget to to set that up, uh, of which you guys put in uh, just under 7 million. Um, some of these other initiatives are just fascinating to us. And, and we've talked about uh, some of the, um, the efforts that we could undertake with you guys around your Medicaid population, which I think would shock most people that UPMC is as deep into the Medicaid business as it is. It's, you guys have over half a million Medicaid members in the Western part of Pennsylvania. And um, that's just a staggering population for a regional plan. Tell us a little bit about some of the efforts there uh, among that population. Great. So yeah, within Medicaid, there's been you know a lot of um, a lot of requirements and opportunities that we I think have, have done a really effective job managing. So our, our state looked at you know how can um, Medicaid plans engage in workforce development, and so rather than having a hard and fast work requirement. You know, we are, are you know, uh, helping members navigate who self-identify as having an interest in employment. And we um, have our team of five dream makers, as we call them, that are here to help our Medicaid members and people from the community navigate jobs within UPMC and beyond. Um, that team helps about 50 people from Medicaid and TANF um, get hired into UPMC each month. And, you know, overall, UPMC employs, you know, almost 90,000 people across, you know, mostly Pennsylvania. Right. And we're hiring about 300 people per month for, who were uh, active in our Medicaid plan. Wow. And we've um, seen opportunities with um, partnership with workforce investment boards. And we have a program we call Freedom House that is, hmm. you know, now beginning its third cohort of 10. We have five cohorts this year where we're helping um, you know, a, through a community-based program based on the 1960s model, which, you know, a great story around sort of the very first, you know, black ambulance company, which is really the mm. 
innovation in um, the Hill District of Pennsylvania, of uh, Pittsburgh, you know, around um, serving, you know, uh, disadvantaged communities with first responders, but sort of replicating the spirit of that model, training a new generation of first responders through a community paramedicine program wow. where they'll get certified as an EMT, also cross-trained in social determinants of health. And so that's just one example. But as we look at sort of our Medicaid membership, also as a talent pool that we can draw from to help you know, strengthen and diversify our ranks as an organization. Right. So that's sort of on, on the workforce front. And then on also within Medicaid, you know, we um, have grown our homelessness assistance program this year. So we had served about 17, 18 people at any given time previously. We now have 62 of our Medicaid members housed in the supportive housing program that, you know, is a lot of wraparound supports and has really right. shown a, a great ROI. And we're, um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, doing a lot of work around, uh, data integration and sort of building building community partnerships. So, you know, th there's a lot of different ways. And, you know, again, as I, as I mentioned, it's all of this work is, you know, really requires braiding. And we, you know, have um, been, you know, seeing some success, for example, within our state's Medicaid, um, adding community-based organizations to our value-based you know, program. It's a bit of a mouthful, but yeah. the idea being that how do we include community-based organizations? A really straightforward way that that's been working for us has been through a partner um, outreaching and helping our Medicaid members sign up for WIC and LIHEAP and SNAP, right. and then sort of testing over time how that impacts health. Right. Those interventions have been shown to save 2200 to 2500 bucks per member per year. Uh, so those are great. I love the the workforce development stuff, just from the standpoint of economic development, which is a you know a huge uh, mandate for us as an opportunity zone fund. Um, but Ray, you dropped a word in there twice that I think most of our readers are probably not familiar with, and that's braiding. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, so you know I think in this in this work, you know, um, healthcare can't go it alone, and you know these are are multi sector problems with. Mul you know, oftentimes multi-generational solutions required. And, you know, when you think about it from that standpoint, you know, all of these different things are converging. So a member, you know, um, in our homelessness assistance program, we, we don't pay the rent. You know, they're, the person ultimately gets a housing choice voucher from HUD. You know, HUD is, is, is helping to subsidize that rent. But we're able to invest in a community partner that helps you know, uh, work with a landlord, find a unit, make sure that our member is, you know, paying their bills and doing the basic upkeep. And then we're able to then braid in our direct clinical services. So by braiding three pieces together, a community partner, um, federal resources and support from local government, along with, um, you know, what we bring as a healthcare organization, we're much more powerful, you know, as sort of a, um, a braided rope than we are as sort of individual threads. And, you know, I see, you know, similarly success in, you know, engaging a community partner to help our members, you know, in their enrollment. And as you know, with dual eligibles, yep. our, our typical member might be a, you know, a single woman who lives alone, yep. has an SSI income of less than $800 a, a month. If you add in, you know, Medicare Part B premium assistance, you know, LIHEAP, SNAP, our state's property tax rent rebate program, all of those different pieces can help you know, buoy her income by as much as 50%. And so sort of supporting that household. But again, those are things that she's eligible for, qualify for, not enrolled in. But by braiding those resources together with what we're doing from a care management and healthcare standpoint can help strengthen her household and give her perhaps more 
uh, resources to then think about the things we're calling about, yeah. those gaps in care in the critical areas. So yeah. all this really requires, you know, multi-sector approach and we see ourselves, you know, stronger together. I love it, Ray. And that the whole concept of braiding is, is something that we sort of live by here at Nightingale as well. And the, the magnifying effect that having multiple programs convene on a single member that will be uh, beneficial is often, you know, two plus two equals eight uh, when you do that. It's, it's wonderful. So Ray, you've also talked about, um, you know, the myriad of programs um, and you had multiple definitions earlier for return on investment. So tell us a little bit about how UPMC goes about uh, gauging the success of these investments, because clearly you guys are not just throwing money at problems. This is really done with an outcome in mind. So tell us a little bit about that across the spectrum of the stuff you guys are doing. Sure, sure. I think that's, you know, first we have a, um, you know, a center for high value healthcare, which is really, you know, our, our, you know, research arm that helps us power, you know, a lot of this work. And, you know, each of these programs, you know, we, we come forward with, you know, a hypothesis and build, you know, an evaluation plan from the start. So for, you know, each of the things I've mentioned, we're, you know, whether it's housing investments, we're looking at a community level, what are the, what are the levers that we're using and how do we see those, you know, impacting community health? And that's, that's tricky. And we're still sort of in the early stages of that. And that's where, you know, that's going to take a lot more thought and evolution, but you have to start somewhere and say, okay, if we make these investments on this block in this community, how can we begin to measure, you know, differences? Uh, on the other side of that, you know, it's also just sort of playing to our strong suit. You know, we're a health plan. We, um, you know, we're comfortable with data. We're comfortable with evaluation. You know, we, we understand how to, um, to do measurement very well. And so looking to see, you know, how, how our members are performing, you know, um, when, you know, for example, we have a study, you know, we're doing right now, back to our benefits data trust and uh, public benefits outreach to see, okay, we, we've seen the literature, SNAP, um, you know, uh, people participating in SNAP have lower costs, but now we're looking to see, okay, for our members who we, who, you know, were previously unenrolled, you know, and are now enrolled, can we begin to see a difference? How long does that difference take? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's an iterative process. And so, you know, how do we um, take things that are confirmed in the literature and begin to, um, to bring what we're accustomed to is we, we sort of think about measurement of clinical programs, which most of the listeners in, in sort of, you know, Medicare Advantage and Medi you know, Medicaid Managed Care, th this is you know, part and parcel. So it's really, you know, bring that healthcare perspective, bring what it is that your team is, is you know, bring your strong suit and apply it then to these new areas. Right. And so it's not just a pure ROI in terms of what kind of healthcare costs you're saving as the payer, but you're looking, you had mentioned earlier as well, you're looking at a return on investment for the, the public confidence uh, in UPMC as one measure. Um, I got to imagine with the massive commitments you guys have made to housing, that you're also looking at, you know, reduced uh, ER utilization, reduced encounters with law enforcement, reduced jail times, things of that sort for folks uh, experiencing homelessness. Um, some of the other metrics, you know, I got to imagine over on the Medicare Advantage side, you guys are looking at the impact of certain star ratings measures, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And on like one, one very simple thing. So by understanding that our members were connected to intellectual disability providers, you know, we, we um, we'd seen that um, we had open gap rates of about, you know, 35% for our members who were connected to the intellectual disability provider system. And in our pilots where we've been working with um, three, now five large intellectual disability providers, we've seen that open gap rate fall to about 5%. Wow. And that's simply just through fluid communication that, yeah. you know, working with this provider who is in the best position to impact our members' health. And, you know, again, it's just sort of having that humility to know that there are organizations and, you know, community-based and, you know, human services that are better poised to help, you know, make a stronger connection with our members. Yeah. Uh, we're, similarly, we're working with an organization, Neighborhood Resilience Project right now, who has been doing just a fantastic job with their community health deputies on you know, vaccine mm -hmm. outreach. And so how do we partner with them? Because they're in a position to have that community trust, help find a member who's unable to be reached from our end, help re-engage them in the things that we want them to do. So yeah. again, th those are just areas where it can just really supplement you know, what we're already trying to accomplish. Well, and it really underscores a critical point, Ray, in, in these investments that both our firms are making, which is it doesn't make any sense to reinvent the wheel when you've got well-established community-based organizations already out there doing it. And the X factor that they offer is trust. Yeah. And the time that it takes to build that trust yourself as you know, a new entrant into an underserved community um, can really you know, hamper and cripple these efforts if, you, if you're leaving these community-based organizations on the side of the road as you go racing down it, right? And that trust is critical to the success of these types of initiatives. Um, Ray, if you had a blank check for these programs, and I know as an investor, we, we love to fantasize about that kind of scenario. Where in it, what scale would you focus some of your efforts for, for the greatest impact that you've seen in the data on your, your, your very expansive membership? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, I think that the place where, where we have the most certain impact that, you know, we're most under invested in, it, you know, just comes back to, to a, you know, housing first mindset and, yeah. you know, be, being able to um, get a person into stable housing is more than, you know, getting off of a decades long waiting list getting a voucher in hand, you then still have to find a landlord that's willing to accept that voucher. Right. Um, uh, you know, being able to, um, again, if money were no object to, to be able to have the resources to, you know, get people into housing right away. So then they can, um, they can think about the bigger things as one of my colleagues says, you know, the rent eats first, you know, and it, yeah. <laughs> you've got to, you've got to make sure you're addressing those basic needs yeah. because, you know, nobody wants to talk to you about scheduling that colonoscopy if they're worried about, you know, being evicted or right. being able to pay their utility bills. And, yeah. you know, and, and again, back on the braiding front, like one thing that we're doing right now, acknowledging that is that there's the emergency rental assistance program that can help people pay a year's worth of arrears and utilities and, um, uh, and, and, and back rent. Such a, such a huge program that, you know, we fear can go underutilized. So we're working with a local partner to, 
you know, have a navigator to help our members, you know, make sure that they take advantage of that. But like, you know, again, the, the, there's such an opportunity for organizations to to do more things like that yeah. as we try to tackle these bigger questions around, you know, how do we make, you know, housing affordable and accessible for all. It's a wonderful point, Ray, because we know that utility debt is the number one driver of evictions that result in homelessness. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a critical point. And, you know, one of the things that guides us, as it sounds like it guides you guys, is, is Maslow's hierarchy, right? Which is, you know, you've got this hierarchy of human needs, and at the very bottom is, is food, shelter, and security, and you can never expect somebody to be an engaged healthcare consumer and take their insulin right all 30 days this month if they're wondering where their next bed or their next meal is coming from. And so that, that housing first model really enables everything else in these interventions that we're talking about, whether they're food security or transportation or, or just better chronic care generally uh, to be successful. Um, how do you manage data with these community-based organizations that are all over the map in their sophistication and the privacy concerns that can come with that. I mean, we're dealing fundamentally in very sensitive health information when we're interacting with these community-based organizations. And, you know, I, I always like to cite the example of the, the 25 nice church ladies in a basement somewhere that are making 200 meals for delivery the next day. Um, you know, it, it is kind of a unique challenge in these investments is that in working with these organizations of varying sophistication, there's extremely sensitive information flying around about the folks that we're all trying to serve. So how, how have you guys handled that in your various investments? Yeah, it's a, it's a learning process and by no means have we, um, you know, solved for it. I, I think we have some great examples where, you know, we have, um, you know, worked with community-based organizations um, you know, the, the strongest ones, you know, right out of the shooter ones that have, you know, participated with Medicaid or county human services in some way. So then, you know, they have some infrastructure, but even with that infrastructure, you know, they may not have, um, you know, had their staff through a, you know, uh, a HIPAA training in some time. And, you know, they may not have, um, you know, have thought about, you know, data security in the same way that, that our legal counsel will when we're when we're you know negotiating an agreement, and so it, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of patience, and you've got to you've got to be in it for for the long haul. So, you know, we have some organizations we're working with that, you know, are um, not in a position today where they can handle individualized member information. You know, there and there are some organ organizations that may not want to do that. Their their core business might be you know, food distribution, not checking to see which, you know, insurance card you have in your pocket. So it's, um, it's understanding where your, your, um, your partners are. I think part of the challenge uh, ongoing is going to be that, you know, is um, our state Medicaid office and the national conversation shifts to social determinants of health and in the same breath around value-based payment we can't express that value unless we see that individualized data. And, you know, I think that's where, you know, increasingly we see a need for more investment and, and technical assistance to help organizations, you know, build that data infrastructure, build, you know, controls, build, you know, a, um, a, a HIPAA, you know, infrastructure 
Um, but that's not going to be the case for, for many organizations. It's just, you know, I think sort of on that spectrum between what are you doing from, you know, a charitable standpoint to what you're doing from a value-based standpoint and where you can, you know, sort of connect that, that Venn diagram and, and be able to see the individualized data. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we've, um, you know, and again, I think the, the, it's always, you know, join the existing parade, you know, sort of start where, where you have the, the wind at your back. And if you have a, a human services organization that's already connected with Medicaid, like to call it, you know, connecting the, the bottom of the triangle. It's like right. we're connected to Medicaid, you're connected to Medicaid. Let's come up with a way to, to, to sort of see how our, our mutual members are, are doing. And, you know, we um, often start these conversations with an organization. Uh, and the second conversation is one where we do a data match where, you know, finding a way where we have a, um, an honest broker that we use as a vendor that helps us, you know, sort of see our mutual membership, and then we can assess, okay, you know, what, what's the opportunity here? So, you know, that also helps you narrow your gaze to say, okay, there, there's just not a lot here to sort of go down this very intensive road. Yeah. The name of the game and what we both do, Ray, has to be cultural competency, right? I mean, you can't do any of these investments and hope that they're going to be successful unless you really understand the communities that you're intervening with. Boy, we got, uh, we got some hard lessons on this in our, in our work in Puerto Rico in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and we all know that these investments are hyper local and they really have to respond to like what's happening almost on a block by block basis. Tell us a little bit about some of the unique cultural challenges that, that you guys face in Pittsburgh, both with its diversity and that diversity that you see reflected in the UPMC membership. What are some of the unique uh, features of the Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania population that you guys have to grapple with daily? Yeah, it, it's, you know, Pittsburgh in recent years has, um, you know, had a lot of headlines around being, you know, one of America's most livable cities and being, you know, a, um, you know, a place really sought after and an affordable place to live. But it really is a tale of two cities. And, you know, uh, Black Pittsburghers have had a very different experience, both economically and health outcomes and otherwise. And in very large part, our, our city is is far more segregated than we, we acknowledge when we are sort of in those in those rankings, and so there was a um, Pittsburgh, um, you know, uh, gender and equity report uh, about two years ago, in, in you know, late 2019, that you know brought a lot of these areas into focus, and you know, our Center for Social Impact, along with our partners in you know population health and across our integrated delivery system, have been you know looking at how we can address some of these core questions. We by no means have you know do not have all the answers, but we have a commitment from our leadership to, you know, invest differently and come up with those community-based solutions. The, you know, the first step is listening, and you know, we've been hearing from our community, and it's also understanding, you know, how can we, you know, contribute as a, you know, healthcare-focused organization. You know, that that's who we are. That's in our DNA. And how do we, um, you know, approach communities differently? And I think that's we um, we haven't solved for it yet, but we have programs that exist around, you know, for example, our, our doula program that our Medicaid plan and our, our family medicine and, and our McGee Women's Hospital operate. And how do we um, look at growing that and sort of building bookends onto it? 
we have um, some experience with community health workers, you know, sort of directly within yeah. our staff, but looking at, okay, how do we, you know, partner with, um, with, with community-based organizations to um, supply us with those, those community health workers. And again, it gets back to some of those very data challenges we're just talking about. We're yeah. working on a grant uh, program right now with Neighborhood Resilience Project, which has these community health workers, they call them community health deputies in the Hill District and some of our other um, underserved, you know, neighborhoods and looking at how we can, um, you know, collaborate more effectively. So there's um, certainly a lot of work ahead. I mean, we are, we are only scratching the surface and what, what we can do through, you know, uh, addressing social determinants of health and, and, you know, areas of, of, of racism and sort of systemic, you know, poverty and, and you know, all, all of the, the issues that sort of drive these outcomes. And, and again, we're, we're not, by no means can we go it alone. Again, all of this will take multi-sector approaches and sort of understanding how we can each contribute. Yeah, absolutely. Ray, what have we missed? Is there anything else you'd like to uh, leave our audience with today as, as we think about uh, what both our organizations are trying to do in this burgeoning space? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, my, my, I guess my, my advice would be, you know, to, you know, think about, you know, where your interests are, are aligned with, um, you know, with organizations in your community. It's, um, you know, the, you don't need to reinvent the wheel on any of these things. It's, you know, one of my mottos is, you know, good ideas never go away. You got to have a good bit of persistence and time yeah. Yeah. and, you know, patience as you sort of, you know, work through these things. But, Again, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of places where you can make an impact. I know social determinants feels daunting and it's sort of these issues are, are big, but, you know, it's important that you, you know, find a place where you can make that impact, measure it. And, you know, it's often starts with, you know, a place where you have a longstanding charitable relationship or, you know, a community-based organization that you've, you know, partnered with and, and you know, building it from there. But, you know, we're still learning. I think we're, uh, we're excited for this you know, new dynamic future in healthcare where we're thinking about things sort of beyond um, what's happening in, you know, in front of a, a physician in a, in a clinical setting. You know, we, um, we have a lot of unique opportunities here, but, you know, this is healthcare. You know, they're, you know, healthcare is expensive enough as it is. So we can't just assume that, you know, healthcare can spend more to address many of these things. So we have to be judicious yeah. and, you know, we have to, add to the evidence. So everything that we do needs to have some, some measurements. So I think those are all things to think about, but, you know, at the end of the day, there, there are some proven places that, that we all know work. Yeah. And, you know, as I mentioned before, it's, you know, supportive housing towards people experiencing homelessness works, you know, working with organizations that know our members better than we do works, you know, and, and helping people access benefits that they qualify for that help enrich their households it works. So, you know, so think about things that, that, you know, where you can, you know, get some early wins and, and build, and we're going to continue to, um, to find areas that fit within that paradigm and find new ones that, that we can prove. It's great. Great point to end on Ray. Uh, thanks so much for your generous allotment of time here for, to share your perspectives with us. And as always, we're really excited to be working with you and UPMC. No, I love I love your show, and uh, really uh, really an honor to uh, to be able to to participate. So, you know, so thank much. you so much for the opportunity. Really, it's wonderful to have you, my friend.